This is Seeds for Success, a show where we have a good yarn about ag life with producers who are having a go. On the show, you'll hear from farmers in New South Wales who are out there battling the elements, making tough calls and getting the job done. You'll get a laugh out of some of their stories and also pick up some know-how along the way. I'm your host, Narrowly Brennan. Today, we're chatting with Andrew and Megan Young. Andrew and Megan run a mixed farming business with their son, Joe, and Andrew's parents. Their property, Napier, at Pearly War, is situated between the Warrumbungle Ranges and the Liverpool Plains. In this episode, you'll hear how Andrew and Megan are using a wheat, canola and loosen rotation to lower their inputs and to build greater beef production. You'll also learn how Megan's special love for her cows goes beyond the paddock and how her kids helped make the hard decision to destock during the drought just a little bit easier. Mixed Farm Advisor Callan Thompson had a yarn with Andrew and Megan over a cup of tea at the Napier dining room table. Today I'm with Andrew and Megan Young on their property at Pearlywall. Would one of you like to give me a rundown on the enterprise? So we run a, a mixed farm, beef cattle, have a rotation with pasture and cropping, which is winter cropping uh, involving mainly canola and wheat. We've only got 70-odd left of, that's the core breeders. We joined just over 70 heifers this year and looking at joining just under 70 this coming year. The base originally was Sienna and Shorthorns. So, yeah, there's a remnant of that and there's also a bit of Brahma. We bought some girls out of Queensland about six or seven years ago and there's a bit of a remnant of that in there too, which we like. And what would your breeder numbers have been prior to the drought? Well, at the beginning of the drought, it was nearly 300. Last year we were back down to about 200 and, yeah, so we've just got the 70 left. And have you taken on any trading stock? since we have um, we're backgrounding about 120 for someone else um, we've recently bought just under 120 western australian heifers drought oh. master everything else in them yep oh very good and it's a family operation can you give me a rundown on the family structure i know joseph works on farm and has for a couple of years now joe's a fully qualified mechanic he was trained in kuna and he's been home with us for the last three years our daughter emily is presently home but she's looking at going and getting an agronomic position in the near future that'll be her first postgrad position yeah then we have marcus is our second son he is second in the family he's welder in dubbo doesn't have an interest in the farm second daughter is katie because emily's first katie's in mount isa up there with her boyfriend and our youngest daughter natalie has just moved to the northern territory to work on a station so yeah they've all got a little bit of dirt in their blood i think yeah, there's a bit of a theme of that Northern Australia. Yeah, no, they like that. And my, my parents are still on the farm as well. We won't forget them. <laughs> uh, Mum and Dad are retired and um, Dad pokes about and does whatever he wants when it suits him and um, poke along enjoying the later years of their life. Often fathers don't retire from the farm. They just... Retire from decision-making. Yeah, yep. maybe. <laughs> still potter about, I think was the yep. word. Yep, yep, yep. So one of the questions we've been been interested to ask people is what was the driver for you both to sort of come back into agriculture? I hated school and really couldn't see myself doing anything else. I really liked the farm. So, yeah, I was pretty set in leaving school and coming home on the farm. So, yeah, and 
Then I realised that education only just starts when she leaves school. Yeah, went from not enjoying learning to really love finding out new stuff and learning as I go. So never had any thoughts of doing anything else until probably later on in life. Yeah, my motivation, I've always loved cows. Uh, Mum and Dad had a farm. The motivation was Andrew because I could come here and, like, we'd work weekends, I'd work all week and then I'd come home and work all weekends. And I just love everything that was happening here. Didn't like the sheep much, but anyway, we've enjoyed everything else we've taken up. <laughs> it's not too many sheep floating about now, is there? Only, um, only the, the neighbours. <laughs> <laughs> In some operations, mixed farming... So having livestock and cropping can antagonism in the business and there's a need for compromise, but it also can be quite beneficial. How do you deal with the mix part of your component? Sometimes it can be antagonistic. Yeah, sometimes I'm not always happy with Andrew's decisions around where I can and cannot move my stock. But all in all, I think it works pretty well. We The compromise is usually okay. Livestock point of view, it's fantastic having the ability to have great feed source with the rotations, it just it seems to work. Always got the grass paddocks and stuff that we don't normally farm anyway, so we've got that bit of a buffer. I mean, seasonally that hasn't worked for us just in the last couple of years, but, yeah, generally that works really well. You've got a fair bit of improved pasture in some of your yeah, wider country. Yeah, we've got console and digits yeah. in the heavy country. But, yeah, anything that's not farmed has got improved pastures on it. Yeah. Yep. From the cropping point of view, you've got compaction and... Life is but a compromise. Uh, the, the upsides of it is uh, we can fallow spray after the surface has dried out. We can have grazing around trees and, and other non-farmable areas to help with weed control. Yeah, so it, it is a compromise totally, but it's one I'm happy to make. It allows us to not only have our great loosened um, pastures for the cattle, but we've got some really good nitrogen input whilst it's in loosen to come in back into farming so so uh, one of the one of the compromises too um with that is that andrew's just recently gone in and taken all the banks out and made them farm overs so the refuges that my cows would have had as a diversity in the pasture that's been eliminated so that's been a huge shift of grazing management to actually deal with having wall-to-wall of anything so yeah that has been a compromise often see some there's a potential to see some animal health yeah. issues if yeah. you monoculture of feed. Correct. Yeah. And it doesn't agree with them. Like stock generally like to have, they like to eat like we like like to eat. So I wouldn't eat the same stuff day in, day out. It's just me. <laughs> I don't think cows like it. No. You touched on your rotation. From the outside looking in, that's always something I've thought was a strong part of your, your system here from agronomic background in the fact that you're loosens putting nitrogen back into the soil and it's also giving you some other options for weed control. Can you give me a rundown on your rotation and how that works? So if we start with canola first up, coming out of a loosen phase, we usually use canola. Then we go into uh, wheat, followed by wheat under sown with loosen again. So it's only a three years crop. And then we look at uh, the three years of lucerne. So it's very short. We use winter active lucerne, not looking for longevity, but the more growth over the colder periods because it does get quite cold here. Yeah, it works, works really well. The other side of that is when it does rain, I'm always 
conscious of putting too much moisture in the soil. Three years of cropping. Into Lucin, we're able to get roots deep, pull up nutrients that aren't usually available to winter crops and do a bit of cycling that way. And it's we're getting a good wetting drying cycle, which is helping breaking up any compaction or stock pads, etc. Nitrogen inputs would be fairly low in that system. Yeah, basically we've pushed out to one year we're there where our undersown loosen wasn't good enough to keep. We pushed that paddock out for, an, for another two years in crop and we had protein drop in wheat but still yielding as good as the stuff. So whilst our soil tests are telling us usually when we start our cropping phase we've got up to, oh well I've had up to 300 units of nitrogen available in soil tests I'm also seeing that in what we're removing without actually putting any nitrogen on apart from what we use for starting fertilizer yeah that's soil type and paddock and tons removed in that equation but yeah we were going pretty cheap with uh, no nitrogen inputs in a in a three-year system yes so those soil tests are, are correlating with what we're actually seeing on the ground I think it's pretty hard to believe how green it is out here at the moment compared to the last couple of years when I've, when I've been floating about. I'd just like to know how you prepared for the drought. We prepared for drought, but we didn't prepare for three years of drought. You know, we've got hay shed with uh, round bales in it, so any opportunity we get to bale some loosen, we do, and that was all but full before we started and uh, the last bit of bailing we did was in March 17, just as it started to go dry. And we have 400 tonne of grain storage on farm uh, whilst it's used for the cropping enterprise uh, and it's not all sold at harvest time. So we're able to spread the sales over an extended period, but it also gives us the ability to use that grain if we need to for feeding. That is one side of it, but the other side of it is we work on a conservative stocking rate so we're not going into drought too early and work on the premises that if you have cattle that are saleable all the time, it's easy to rotate them out the door. Yep. We also bale our stubble behind the header. Not in all paddocks, but mostly the undersown stuff. And then we make round bales out of that. So that was actually our fibre component when we actually started to create rations, which we'd never really fed before, but it gave us the flexibility to do that. As Andrew said, we, we tend to maintain our, our mobs in age groups. So within it, like there's probably three years in any one group. So it makes them an easy mob to pick and choose from. I think you can only prepare for drought so much. I sort of feel like we were not as prepared as maybe we'll be next time. But it, this was a really steep learning curve to have such an extended period of dry. Yeah, it's probably made us think about things that we'll do differently next time. Yeah. And I don't think anyone was prepared no. for the drought that we ended up with no. for three years, especially in a area like Perlu Wall that yeah. we, we class as relatively safe. safe. Yeah. And and generally most people were prepared for the twelve to eighteen month 
yeah. stuff. And once it sort of got further than that, we were in uncharted waters for anyone that was alive really in this area that had been here. But like my, my father had set up great reticulation system on this place. We're not relying on dams for, for water for our stock or domestic use. You know, we saw at the end of three years of drought that they still were standing up. The, they'd slowed down a bit, but, you know, this planting had started way back before I come home. So as the drought continued and you did have to make some hard decisions on destocking, how did you go about that process? Because I'm so emotionally invested in my animals, it was really challenging, but we did a workshop. Rainer. Al Rainer. Yeah, yeah, Al Rainer. Yep. which was a very holistic approach. It was real nutsy-boltsy. So it, you actually had to list what your feedstocks were, what your livestock was, you know, how long you could go for. It was a real budgeting system. Fantastic. And that really put things in perspective. And he actually talked about writing down some timelines. And as hard as that was, I sort of was talking to Andrew one day and he said, well, write down, you know, the when. We need to pick some dates. So I've actually got it in my book here, the dates that were written down. And if it hadn't rained by X date, then we needed to make some decisions. And that was the hardest decision because that was my old cows went and they went as a mob. And the bull had given Andrew a bit of issue in the yard, so he left too. But that was, we, we just set some dates. There were benchmark dates. And if we got to those and we hadn't had significant rain, then things had to go. I know it was a tough decision, especially when you are so emotionally attached to the cows. I know your family did a bit to yeah. um, try and make that a bit easier. There's a young girl that takes photos here, Jess Richards, and I had teed up Jess to come and do some photos of my girls before they left. There was one mob that was early calving, so they were the first four-ish weeks. We'd actually boxed them separately. And then there was the late carvers, so we had the ability to actually drop off the early girls first if that was required or drop off the late girls or whichever way it worked. And Jess came out and took photos. I had professional photos done of my cows. And then she won some prizes at the show with some of my girls. I've still got them with me even though I don't have them with me. And then recently for my 50th birthday, my kids actually had a photo of one of my cows made into a, an etched steel garden art piece, which is, yeah, fantastic. We can actually see that out the, um, out the window from where we're sitting at the moment, which is yeah. uh, a nice, nice thing. So one of the actions you took through the drought was early weaning. Can you give us a rundown on how you went through that process? Because we know that early weaning isn't the easiest process to go through with livestock. I, I think it started by an early thought process. We were reading Gillian Kelly's drought emails and she was always on the front foot with it. So as carving came up, we started looking at, you know, we've, we've weaned earlier in other years than we'd normally do. And so we started thinking about doing it as early as we possibly needed to, well before we needed to do it. So we were seeking information and working out what we needed to do, getting the appropriate feed ready, ordered, in the shed ready to go so we weren't making the decision then trying to find something to feed them. Our loosened bales in the shed predominantly was to keep our weaners going plus other stuff that we bought in. So it started before we needed to do it and a good yard set up 
alterations in the yard to to suit weaning. Set a date, set a timeline, and check the weather. Pull the pin on it. As usual, the bureau got the weather wrong, and we were lucky enough to get the shower of rain for everything else, but not for the weaning. It was cold and wet. Yeah, the weather was horrendous after we'd weaned. Well before we'd weaned, I went out to a feed workshop out at Jason and Kylie Katz's at Futurity and Gillian was there and she talked about early weaning. And then shortly thereafter, she ran a workshop in Pearlywall and I said to Andrew and Joe, I said, you guys need to go and listen to what she's got to say. I'd heard it, but I needed them to hear it also. And that was pretty much where we started with the weaning thinking. And it was about maintaining cows, but also looking after the kids we put up some rubber belting around the yards to try and make windbreaks and made sure that we had enough headspace because Brett Little would talk about how much, you know, headroom they needed and Al had also mentioned it. And then we just, we weaned those early weaners, the, the four-week girls. Yeah, that was the first mob and then we ended up with a few issues going through that. We ended up with a bit of BRD or flu symptoms or whatever it was. Yeah, they were treated accordingly and because there was a bit of coughing in that going through the mob, it was always hard to know who'd done the cough. So in the end, Joseph and I went through and we actually stuck a thermometer in each one and made sure that their temps were okay and then we did get some high ones. So we just took them out and put them in the opposite side of the yard so that the race was between the two mobs and they were the hospital pen and then we just managed them as, as best we could. I think we lost one from memory that first year. We've early weaned again the following year and the results that we've had from the weaners this year have been fantastic. There's so many variants in that strain that, that can affect eyes and the dust in the yards and all those things, I think it was just pushing uphill. And, and we did do a trial because we had 152 weaners, so only three lots of the 50 got it, so there was a couple of kids that didn't get any. I wouldn't say there was any difference between one lot and the next. There weren't only two that were left out, there was a few that were left out, depending on the groups that were weaned. So it might have been, you know, 12 or 15. We definitely fine-tuned things this year compared to the first year we did it. I think we did a better thing this year. Would you agree with that? Yeah, yeah. no, yeah. definitely. I think um, it was easier. Yeah, we knew what we were up against yeah. and um, weather forecast worked out right this time. Yeah, it did. I remember Sarah Ma, who was the district yeah. vet here at the time, being very impressed that you had a thermometer <laughs> for your livestock. And she's... Yeah, but you need one that works fast because, you know... You, you just can't be hanging on for 10 seconds waiting. You need something that reads in about three seconds. So it's in, out, and he's gone and his mate's in. So, you know, that was – it took a very long time with the slow thermometer. I'd much prefer to have a fast one. Yeah, I think mine's a, a kid's one that I've oh, yep. stolen out of um, our medicine, medicine cabinet, cabinet at home. Yeah. But, yeah, it does take a long time and yep. they do get fairly it's, uh It's worth erratic. the 15 bucks to get a quick one, just saying. <laughs> <laughs> in response to – the drought and, and your process through the early weaning, is there anything that you would do differently next time? It's funny, Joseph's comment was that he thinks we need to have more feed reserves. That probably will be something we'll consider as far as um, our straw bales are concerned because they can sit there. Some of the ones that we originally had, the rat was falling off, but they were still, as far as putting them into a feed mixer, yeah, it made life simple. You could measure, everything was measurable. As far as Early weaning's concerned. The first year we tried to damp down things to keep the dust out. As far as the feed was concerned, that was a huge issue. We created a mould problem, so we wouldn't do that again. I think it's a case of um, not pushing the system too hard. Yeah, there's got to be a balance in all things. You can't wean them when they're too young. I think there's just too much work. 
So it's got to be a compromise. You've got to look after your cows, but the kids have got to be able to, you know, support themselves and they've got to be immune, strong enough that they can actually be a bit self-sufficient. This last time we weaned only up this end. I think have them close, make sure that you, you do a walk through twice a day, you know, just basic stuff. But I think there's always fine-tuning to be done. I think, you know, if you don't think that you can always do something better. Yeah, that's yeah. very good. Trying to maintain ground cover, mm-hmm. stubble cover to utilise any rain we did have. Yeah. Looking at our loosened pastures during the drought, we've got these really green patches in where our header trails were, where we kept more stubble. Whilst I knew the benefits of it, I didn't realise how long they actually stuck around and made a difference. And I've got a paddock of loosen across the road here that's now three going on four years old the header trails are still growing better but it doesn't spread the full width of the machine and you can pick the difference yeah going forward we're going to try and build build that organic matter more as difficult as it can be at times managing other things in the cropping systems that's one of my things that made it good because it grew but we also did blow up a few during a drought um, because of these green strips. So, <laughs> we lost yeah. two key peppers last February, not February this year, but February last year in a loosened paddock just because it, it was fresh. I would agree with Andrew. That was one of the things as I've pondered this is if you've got something on the ground, you've got something to come back. But if you've bared everything, you're not going to have a feed source. You've got to supply something. So from a financial and, and time management point of view, you're much better off to leave something so that, yeah, if you do get that shower, you might have a bit of green pick come away and it just supplements whatever you're feeding them anyway. It's just nutritionally it's better for them. And is there anything that you've done different this year directly after the rainfall event due because of something that you've learnt through the drought? You know, as soon as it started to rain, we went, OK, we've got a bit of a reprieve. Probably took six months before we sort of went, I think we might be out of drought and let ourselves relax. I think there's still a part of me that thinks that maybe this is just, you know, a brief spell, even though it's gone on for months. I'm just not convinced. But the thing that probably has shown up for me is the value of our relationship. Like, this is periphery, but it's how are we. It's the people in the business making sure that Joe's okay because Andrew's dad kept commenting that ever since Joe had come home it had been tough. You've got to look after those people in the business. Like, at the end of the day, they're the ones that matter most. And looking after yourself. You can't change what is. Get someone to come in and feed your stock or whatever, or whatever needs to be done, but look after yourself. And I think that's fundamentally probably one of the most important things that probably has come out of the drought. It's us. Are we okay? Individually and together. Yeah. Yep. Actually, look, looking back, having time to think about that question, as soon as the opportunity came... We cut some more loose and hay to refill our shed, mm. harvested a bit of digit seed and baled the straw and that's all been in the first three months of this year. I expected it to keep going. I thought we'd just had a bit of a flash in the pan but I've been wrong in the past. Looks like I'm wrong again but, yeah, I was utilising that so as I was ready to survive for a bit again. longer. Yeah, yeah. go again. Yeah. What do you see as opportunities in agriculture going forward? Every time there's a change in anything we do in agriculture presents new opportunities 
for learning and for people to come up with ideas to facilitate, you know, make money out of it, improve what we do in agriculture. So if life was easy, everyone would do it. But, uh, yeah, when life's tough, it gives the opportunity for those with different ideas to jump up and, and have a go. And I think there's lots of opportunities in agriculture. I think the sky's the limit. Yeah. Oh, we've got a daughter, you know, Em wants to go into agronomy. Um, Joe's working here with us. We talk already about, you know, because we brought that blog down the road a few years ago, just before the drought started. But, you know, what's the next place? There's more development to be had. There's more ideas to be sown and, and reaped and and all that going forward. So bring it on. We'll see what happens with harvest this year before we, we, <laughs> we bring it on. But, um, yeah, no, there's so much potential. And, and young people are the the future of agriculture you know their ideas and concepts but that's not to the detriment of the older generation either because you know some of those fundamentals that they've got are going to stand in good stead with the young ones when they come up with what they come up with so you know not reinventing the wheel but yeah using the wisdom from the past to make great decisions for the future really that's there's there's no point in being reactive to changes in agriculture you've got to be proactive Proactive. amen to that Wherever you stand on climate change or whatever, if you look at a wheat crop, it can germinate, grow in 100 mils of moisture for the year or it can grow in you know, 600 mils of moisture. Uh, it adapts and I think we've just got to take our cue from nature and adapt with the changes that come to agriculture. And I think within those changes, that's where the opportunities lie. Thank you so much for being a part of this podcast and really sharing your, your learnings and experience. Thank you. You're welcome. Thanks for listening. This podcast was brought to you by Central West Local Land Services. Local Land Services delivers advice and support to farmers, landholders and the community across New South Wales. To learn more, you can find us online by searching for Central West Local Land Services. If you'd like more information about the topics we discussed today, as well as links to relevant articles, fact sheets, events and other helpful resources, we've added those into the show notes for this episode. You can find them by tapping or swiping over the cover art in your podcast player now. Hey, and while you're there, please leave us a five-star review. It really helps other farmers find the show. I'm your host, Narily Brennan, and I'll chat to you next time.